everybody. Welcome to All Have Another Podcast with Lindsay Hine. I'm your host, Lindsay. Thank you so much for being here today. Today you're listening to episode 83, and I'm talking to Myrna Valereo. Myrna is a Spanish teacher, a choral director, a diversity practitioner, a cross-country running coach, a blogger, and an avid trail runner. She believes that many of life's lessons can be learned by simply engaging oneself in the pursuit of wisdom gained through simply moving your body in nature. Some of you may have heard of her. She was on the cover of Women's Running Magazine for the month of September, and she's kind of been all over the media here recently. I had a blast talking to her. Before we get started talking with Myrna, I want to thank Kind Snacks for supporting this podcast. What I love about Kind Snacks is they are made in the United States. They're made with ingredients you can recognize and pronounce, and they use high-quality, nutrient-dense whole ingredients like whole nuts and whole grains. The snacks are gluten-free, low-sodium, they have no sugar alcohols, and they're made without genetically engineered ingredients. You guys can get a sample box of Kind Snacks delivered to your front door, and all you have to do is pay shipping. If you just go to kindsnacks.com slash Lindsay, that's just $5.99 for the shipping. Lewis, do you like Kind Snacks? Yeah. <laughs> I am part of the Kind Snacks Club where I get Kind Snacks delivered to my door once a month, and I love them. I also want to thank Taylor's Bakery for supporting the podcast. You guys, they are going to be set up at the live show this weekend. Taylor's Bakery is a fourth-generation, family-owned and operated bakery right here in Indianapolis. They specialize in scratch recipe birthday cakes, wedding cakes, and specialty cakes. And Big Lou, Louis, my second child, his first birthday cake came from them, and it was delicious. So thank you, Taylor's. If you guys are local to the Indy area, I highly recommend checking them out for your next birthday or whatever party you've got going on. All right, guys, enjoy my conversation with Myrna. Hey, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. Thank you so much for taking my call today. Thank you. Are you hiding in a closet somewhere? Oh my gosh. Is that what I read? How did you read that? Where did oh and on Instagram? Instagram. Okay, you're gonna die. You're gonna die. I am in my dad's like gun closet. That's hilarious. I'm not even kidding. We're at my parents' house and there are like probably ten kids here running around. And there are three bedrooms being taken up by, like, various napping slash crying babies. So yeah. um, okay. <laughs> I was like, I guess my best option is the basement in this gun. Cl- it has, like, a gun safe, a bunch of electric guitars, a dollhouse. Like, it's so random. Um, that is hilarious. <laughs> yes. But you're a busy lady, so thank you so much for taking my call. Okay, everybody. So we're talking with Myrna Valerio and... I'm sure some people listening have seen you on the cover of Women's Running Magazine this month. Woohoo! <laughs> How awesome was that? That was, um, you know, I keep saying uh, in the last two years, things have been life-changing. So that was another one of those life-changing things. But, you know, that it would surprise me every time I walked into an airport at a bookstore and saw myself. <laughs> Yeah, it's like <laughs> on the cover of a magazine. That was it was really cool, but really, really surreal at the same time. That's amazing. Now, I don't know. You probably don't know this about me, but it, like three years ago, I applied for that their cover runner contest, and I so I was on the mm-hmm. cover too, like three years ago. So I kind of know what you mean. Awesome. Um, yeah, isn't it? Isn't it weird? So <laughs> I won a contest, and you weird. were just like badass enough that you were on the cover. <laughs> <laughs> So, okay, let's just get into your life and who you are. Um, You grew up in Brooklyn. I did. I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, not Brooklyn, Ohio, or Brooklyn, (laughs) Maryland, Um, in New York. Um, And uh, I I had a great childhood, Um, even though we we were fairly poor, but we had a Big family, big blessing family, a great community even, and uh, and it was just my family was very very lively. <laughs> when I say bustling and lively, I mean like really loud and <laughs> and just all over the place and fun and everybody's a comedian. So that's that's kind of how I grew up. And um, but after after um, middle school in Brooklyn, I went to boarding school for high school in Westchester County, New York. Um, and that's, that's kind of where my life's trajectory was completely changed. 
So tell me about that. Why, mm -hmm. why did you go to boarding school? I don't know much about boarding school. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So it wasn't a military school. <laughs> a lot of people think boarding schools are either reform schools or military schools. And there definitely are those out there. But most boarding schools are just independent schools that have boarding students in them. Independent schools meaning private schools. And uh, so I was in a special program in Brooklyn called Prep for Prep 9, where they took um, – sort of financially, economically disadvantaged students from the city and prepared them for entry into independent schools. And so the school that I went to was part of that program. Um, and it was an all-girls school. Um, and I forgot to say that the, the program also is for academically gifted students. Okay. <laughs> um, so not just for poor students, but poor academically good students. And uh, so I got to go to boarding school and, uh, and it was an all-girls school very small um, and uh, and just really wonderful. And it, it was a place that really opened me up. I, I felt like the world was my oyster as soon as I got there. Um, I had previously been a very, very shy, very timid person with very few friends. And as soon as I got to high school, everything changed. Um, I signed up for foot field hockey the very first day there uh, because it was new to me. Um, I knew very little about it and it looked to be easier than soccer. <laughs> so, uh, so I signed up for field hockey. Then I became a, so I became sort of a jock and uh, um, a musician. I started taking voice lessons. So I became trained classical voice. Um, I did theater. I did all these different things that I'd never done before. And so I just felt, I really did feel like everything in the world was for me. Um, and so, and I, and I haven't, um, I haven't left that feeling at all. So tell me this now, were you in the Brooklyn public school system? Before I went to boarding school, I was in the New York city public school okay, system. New York in city. Brooklyn. Okay. Mm -hmm. And what year did you go to move to the boarding school? You might've already said this. That was 1999, 1989. And what grade were you in? <laughs> I was in ninth grade. Okay. Okay. Um, I'm so intrigued by like the public school system. We live in, in the city in Indianapolis and mm -hmm. our kids are, we're planning to send them to this, like, um, it's a magnet school basically. Um, but it's still a public school. Mm -hmm. Um, I always get magnets and charters confused, but anyway, I'm so intrigued with like the idea of like a band of parents coming together and all going to the same like public school that is not a charter or a magnet and like helping, mm -hmm. uh, diversify the demographics and stuff to make, you know, certain public schools not failing. Um, mm -hmm. but, but anyway, tell me, tell me the difference between those two experiences. Like how did you thrive in the public school system? Well, you know, I actually went to a public school that I guess would be considered a magnet school. Okay. <laughs> that wasn't just a, your, you know, sort of ho-hum public school. Okay. Um, I had okay. to take a test to get into it and it was a, a gifted school. Okay. Got so, it. And, and that was from sixth to eighth grade that I went there. But in terms of survival, even though there, even though every, everybody was smart, um, there was still a pecking order. Okay, sure. <laughs> uh, it was like a social pe pecking order um, that I was at the bottom of because I was so shy. I had no social skills. And, um, and uh, all I did was read and write in my journal. <laughs> so, um, so socially, it was difficult, but academically, it was the best thing to happen to me ever. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, uh, but, and I also had, I had been in the gifted program in my previous, in my elementary school, but, um, this was, this was a whole new thing. And, uh, it was, it was great in that I was challenged every single day of my existence there. And I love that. I love the challenge and not having everything be easy for me. So, um, yeah, that was, that was, uh, middle school for me. <laughs> well, and you mentioned in another interview that, you weren't really involved in sports, um, like growing up as a kid, because you came from a lower income family and you, you weren't necessarily focused on like paying for sports. It was more like we're paying the bills. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> do you think, do you think now in 2017, there's more opportunities for kids with lower income to participate in these sports? Or is that a problem we're still hardcore facing? I think, um, well, there are a couple of things. I think there are more opportunities for kids to participate in sports, um, all different 
kids from all different types of economic strata. Um, but it's still, uh, you know, there, there are things like girls run and it doesn't cost anything for them to participate, which is amazing. Oh, girls um, on I the wish, run. Yes. I'm sorry. Girls on the yes, run. Yes. I know what you're talking about. Um, and, um, and so like that, things like that are, are amazing. And they're, you know, New York road runners has a running program for kids that's free of charge. Um, so those things do exist now, whether or not people find them, um, mm-hmm. and people feel entitled to actually look for those things or even know that they, they could be looking, that's an entirely different thing because different types of communities have different priorities. Yeah. Um, you know, and as, and as you said, like as w- when I was growing up, our priority was, you know, getting fed, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, making sure we had clothes, uh, making sure the lights stayed on and the gas stayed on, things like that. And so um, my parents anyway, weren't necessarily concerned about putting us into sports and stuff like that. Um, you know, even though everybody knows that sports are good for kids uh, and everybody knew that back then, but that just wasn't something that was really on the radar. And, and, and when kids did do sports, um, and when they join teams, those things cost money. So we couldn't, like those uniforms cost money or cost the fee to, to participate. We, so we, we couldn't do that. And so we didn't. How many siblings do you have? I have, um, there are four of us. So okay. I have three siblings. I have, um, I'm the oldest, okay. so I'm the boss. <laughs> <laughs> are they all still in Brooklyn? They, uh, I, my a brother, I have a brother and a sister in Brooklyn, and I have another brother in Phoenix, Arizona. Okay, so you say that you start, you joined the field hockey team, and that was kind of like a life changing moment for you. What what did that look like then? I mean, did that take you somewhere else with your athleticism, or what was next? Um, well, it, it, that's where my athleticism started. So, <laughs> um, I that after that first practice, which included a mile to warm up a timed mile and then two and a half hours of practice afterwards. <laughs> I, um, I discovered this whole new thing about me that I could, I could move that much for that long and not die. Yeah. <laughs> um, although I was in pain after that first, that very first practice, um, there was something about it that really, really attracted me to it. And it, it was, it was more than one thing. It was the fact that one, here was this incredibly difficult thing for me uh, that I did. And I completed, even though I was slow, I did it and I finished. Number two, um, there was this really intense camaraderie in the team. Even though it was my first day, I never for one second felt like I belong. Mm. And that had basically been my experience all throughout middle school. Mm-hmm. Even though I loved middle school, like I hated the social aspect of it, but um, but here in high school, I never, ever felt excluded <laughs> in anything that I did, which was really awesome. And it was a really new feeling to me. And I became addicted to that. And being a part of the field hockey team was what that was. Um, and then um, after I got used to the physical demands of the sport, it really became fun. And I looked forward to it most days, not every day, because I was, I was a teenager. Right. <laughs> 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 and I felt like I had other things to do, but, um, but I, I loved field hockey and then I eventually joined the lacrosse team too. And it was the same thing. It was, here was this new sport that nobody I knew in my family or in my friend circle at home, nobody played these games. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it was, it was so cool to be able to do something different and to also be good at it. Cause I was, I played varsity. So yeah. <laughs> So that was, um, that was really cool. And again, I just, I loved getting up in the morning to run because I felt like I needed to run more to be better at those sports. And so that's how I started running. And, um, and I love the feeling of making my body more powerful and, and better able to handle the demands of field hockey and lacrosse by running. So, and I just, and then through that, I just fell in love with running. (laughs) Um, if that's interesting, you say these sports that, you know, none of your family had ever done because honestly, like as someone, I grew up in like a small town in Indiana and we've moved mm-hmm. to Indianapolis. Like I think, and I, and I did not grow up in a low income family, but I mm-hmm. 
But I hear lacrosse and I hear field hockey and I think rich people sports. Like that's just what I oh, think, yeah. you know? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> because those sticks are really expensive. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, we didn't have that in our high school. And, you know, the public schools, I don't think uh-huh. have them where I live, but uh, I think Carmel does, which is like a fancy suburb of Indianapolis. Uh-huh. So, yeah, yeah I mean, yeah. sure. <laughs> Definitely um, field hockey and lacrosse are are sports that attract sort of middle, upper middle class and up types of people. Um, and so that's why, and those, those are the types of people that traditionally are able to afford boarding school oh, sure. <laughs> and school in general. Um, and it's also a very sort of Northeast thing. And there, there are pockets mm-hmm. around the country where field hockey and, um, and lacrosse are played, but it's definitely a Northeast boarding school type of thing. So, so after, after school and, and you went on, where did you go to college? I went to Oberlin College of Arts and Sciences and Oberlin Conservatory of Music, where I got a double degree uh, in, which means two degrees, in um, uh, vocal performance and in Spanish. Okay, that's amazing. Are you, do you like perform? Like, do you sing places ever, anytime? Not regularly, but when I can get a gig, I take it. <laughs> what, what, tell me what's your um, style? Like, what kind of music do you sing typically? I'm a, I'm a classical musician. So, okay. um, opera and art song um and art song for most people who are not initiated sounds just like opera so okay. <laughs> it's just not an, um so um so that's the kind of singer I am I don't sing anything else <laughs> <laughs> theater I don't do R&B or gospel I just I I can sing Mozart <laughs> how did you do how did you like discover that you were gifted at that oh that's an interesting story <laughs> I um, tell me <laughs> you know how I said that um going to boarding school made the world my oyster right uh-huh. um that is when i started taking voice lessons um in um in the ninth grade and the story goes like this okay <laughs> i tried out i went i signed up to try out for glee club okay but my i'm a, in a family full of artists my mother's a singer my sister's a singer my brother's a he um creates beats so he, he does music producing. Everybody's talented in one, one way or another. And, uh, and my talent was singing also, like my mother and my sister. And um, so, and, I've, I, and I just love singing. So I tried out for Glee Club. I got into the room with a teacher. Her name was Mrs. Daly. <laughs> and um, she, she warmed me up. And so I did what she asked me to do. And she stops, looks at me. Mm, okay. <laughs> and, you know, I'm thinking something is wrong. I'm like, did I do something wrong? Did I sing off key? What did I do? And so she says, do this. And so she does a little thing on the, uh, on the piano. And so I repeat it and she says, hmm, okay, now do this. And so that went on for a couple of minutes and I'm like, what is this lady doing? <laughs> Why is she keeping me here so long? I'm, I'm, I'm sure somebody else is supposed to be in here. And so at the end of that, uh, she looks at me and says, I've never heard a voice like this before. Huh. In my 20-something years of teaching, I have never heard a voice like this. And I'm looking at her like she's crazy. <laughs> what is she talking about? <laughs> um, and she's like, you know, you, you've got a really beautiful voice. It's really pure. It's really this. It's really that. And, uh, and then she asked me if I wanted to take voice lessons. And I said, well, um, no, because we can't afford it. Mm. And, um, but thank you for offering, or thank you for, um, bringing that up. And, um, and she says, oh no, she says, oh no, um, you won't have to pay for it. You need to take voice lessons. And so that was that. She signed me up for voice lessons and she also signed me up for piano lessons. Was this through all through the school? (laughs) This is all through the school. Okay. And, um, and so that, that was, you know, within the first two weeks of, of school was when that happened. And so I took voice lessons um, from her for the first year, and she um, encouraged me to audition for the Juilliard pre-college for the following year, which I didn't. So from 10th to 12th grade, I, on the weekends, I studied voice at the Juilliard School in New York City. So um, in addition to being at, um, being at my high school. So that seems like such a dream. That seems like a movie. Well, you know what? My, the second memoir that I write is 
probably going to be about my experience in high school because there it is so rich and it is so wonderful. There was, you know, there were very, very few times when I didn't want to be there. Um, and the only times that I didn't want to be there was when something was going on in my family. Mm. Um, but, um, that I felt like I needed to be there for. Mm-hmm. Um, but otherwise it was that school, the master's school, which is now co-ed, um, is, is one of those, it really did change my life. Um, and eventually I went back to, um, to teach there. I taught middle school music there for a couple of years. So, um, when I think of boarding school as someone who's never been immersed in that culture or knows anything about it, I think, uh, kids that misbehave and they get sent to boarding school. Yeah. And that's not what this was. Yeah, clearly. (laughs) Right. This is your normal independent school. Very sort of very traditional, um, but also very progressive Uh in terms of teaching methods and the way that they taught girls, um, because back then it was an all girls school. Um, but they, we had small classes, everybody loved on, on everybody else. Mm -hmm. And, uh, we ate dinner together. Um, we were in the dorms and, you know, they had a whole residential curriculum. There were trips on the weekends. Uh, and sometimes I would go home with one of the day students for the weekend and, Mm. And so you know, I got to meet all these different people. There were people from all over the world there. Um, you know, my, my best friends were Korean and Japanese and, and, and from Taiwan. And, um, and it was this incredible thing. And every time summer rolled around, I would get depressed because then I wouldn't be able to be at school. <laughs> and I had so to like, you know, be at home, which was wonderful, but I wasn't at school. And so um, that place holds such... It, such um such a place in my heart um because it really was I felt like I became a person I felt like I became who I am today there um and so and and and, you know my hope is for every high school student to have an experience like that and I I know that's not the case and I know it's not possible but that is really why and how I am the person I am today so um we have to get to running but before we get there I want to talk to you um, about this specifically, because I think mm-hmm. this is a good segue. You brought up, you had friends from all over the world and now you are a diversity practitioner. Mm-hmm. Tell me <laughs> exactly what that is and what that means. Sure. I, okay. So my, um, title at school is as the director of equity and inclusion, um, which at other schools might be the director of diversity or the director of multicultural affairs, et cetera. Um, so basically what I do, what I see my job is, um, is to make sure that everyone in my school community has a seat at the table. Mm. And, um, and so and that's, you know, that's a very, very broad statement <laughs> that can mean a lot of different things. But what I mean by that is that all, the, all of our constituencies, um, especially our students, because they are the most important people at our school, um, but they're not only them, but their families, our faculty, our staff feel like they are integral parts of the school in all of the decision making that is done in, um, in the curriculum. Uh, and the sports program and the residential program and everything, because I, I work at a boarding school. So, um, and and I also want to make sure that everybody feels like they belong. So that what that means is that I do a lot of programming. I bring in speakers. I do workshops myself. I lead workshops. I facilitate them. I facilitate a lot of student groups, or I um, am the faculty advisor for student groups, um, and I make sure that. Kids, especially the kids, not just not just the kids though, um, feel like they are a part of the community, which is a really hard job um, anywhere you go because there's so many competing forces mm-hmm. <laughs> on the outside uh, in in our country and in the world. Um, so it's my job to make people feel that they are um, that they are that they belong and that they're not excluded. Um, from anything because of any part of their cultural identity. And and that encompasses a lot of different things. That could be race, ethnicity, religion, your profession, your socioeconomic status, um, whether or not you come from a two-parent family or a same-gender parent family. Um, all of those things fit, un- fit under cultural identity. And so 
you know, I'm, I'm making sure and I'm always looking out um, for kids that feel excluded and are excluded sometimes because of a particular aspect of their identity. So, um, so I do a lot of training, a lot of faculty training, um, which I love doing. I love leading workshops. Um, and I love having conversations with kids and like and facilitating really, really difficult dialogue between people. Um, and making sure that, you know, everybody feels that they've had their say and that people are listening, even though they might have vastly different opinions um, and vastly different life life experiences and and perspectives, um, you want, I want to make it, um, a community where all of those things are taken into account when decisions are made. Okay. So, and you're in, you're in like the mountains in Georgia, right? I am in the North Georgia mountains, North Georgia mountains. <laughs> but you say that it's yeah. a pretty, di- I mean, you, people aren't going to assume that it's a diverse, uh, culture there, but it is right at your school. But um, at my school it is, but yeah. not outside of my okay. school. <laughs> because people come in from everywhere to go to your right. school. Yes, we have actually, we have about 37 countries represented in our student body. Wow. How um, big is it? It's, it's the school is currently around, I should have the numbers, but I don't. But I know the high school is around um, 350 kids. And okay. we have a middle school. And then we also just opened up a lower school. So it's, you know, it's, it's expanded <laughs> by a lot in the last couple of months. But uh, yeah, it's the school itself is very, very diverse. Um, and and one thing that distinguishes my boarding school, which is uh, the Raven Gap Nakuchi School in Raven Gap, Georgia, where I work right now. The one thing that distinguishes us from other boarding schools is that we give 80 percent of our families financial aid, okay. um, which is different from the school that I went to. Um, and it's different from a lot of the Northeast schools, um, which makes it a very, very different and dynamic community, which I love. Mm. So what's, if you, as a parent, um, I mean, you're a parent too, but as a parent, Mm -hmm. I have three little boys. What is a piece of advice, um, you would give a parent to kind of train their kids to be a part of this inclusion that you're talking about? I mean, my kids are little. Uh Absolutely. Not, you know, it's a lot of parents are afraid to talk about things mm. for fear that they might seem um, like they're trying to be divisive or, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, especially when talking about race, for example, mm-hmm. I'll just give you, <laughs> I'll give you a, a personal example from my, from my life. Um, I talk about race all the time with, I, I am African-American. So that is just a part of my existence in the United States. So I talk about it all the time in my, with my son. And we have no issues talking about it. But when it comes to other races um, who aren't necessarily comfortable with talking about race, that's something that's seen as a taboo. And so if there's a way to talk about these really hard issues with your kids, obviously at a development, development I can't say the word, <laughs> at a developmentally appropriate um, in a developmentally appropriate way, then I think, I think all families should do it. And, and not just about race, but about faith, about, about your neighbors that don't look like you or that speak a different language. Oh, I wonder what language they speak. Let's find out. Mm. Um, let's do some research on the country that they're from. Um, let's invite them over into our house. Let's extend ourselves to them. And, and I think, you know, that's probably the, the, the most important thing that I would do is really to extend yourselves to other people, uh, especially when they're different from you. Mm, I love uh, that. Yeah. So, um, because it's hard to do, it's scary, especially when you don't know people and you don't know anything about their culture. But, um, but that kind of thing doesn't go unnoticed. You know, even if you, uh, you know, say you invited the new family or the family that you don't know very well over for coffee or something. Um, and even if they say no, that doesn't go unnoticed. Well, <laughs> they might be afraid too. And but, uh, yeah. I have an example with that. There's, um, we live, we live in the city and there's, um, I mean, I'd say it's pretty diverse where we live there's a church across the street from our, the alley where we live and it's an African-American church. It's called Phillips mm-hmm. temple. And I don't know that there, there may be, I've maybe seen two or three white people ever go into that church mm-hmm. and I'll run by in the more Sunday mornings and I'll hear the choir. And I'm like, I, we should really just like go there one day and just like experience mm-hmm. that, you know? Um, but I have to be completely honest. I would feel uncomfortable and that's, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. like, 
And that's probably how an African-American person would feel going to an all-white church, mm -hmm. you know? Yep. <laughs> but here, you know, the lesson in that is, and, and I actually wrote about this in my book, um, as part of my sort of diversity, my own training and the training that I do for people, we have this phrase called lean into the discomfort. It is going to be uncomfortable. And the more that we're used to being uncomfortable, the better humans will be. Mm -hmm. um, so go in there knowing that this is going to be really awkward and it's going to be really uncomfortable. And you know what? Maybe it won't. But if you go in expecting that, and but go in being um, or accepting, expecting and accepting that you will be uncomfortable, amazing things can happen. Well, and it's like I'm 99% sure that every person there would probably be very welcoming and loving to me. Mm -hmm. It's just putting mm -hmm. yourself in the environment. That first, yes. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Let me ask you this. As an African-American person, would you mm -hmm. prefer a white person to say person of color or African-American? I'm asking this like politically incorrect question sure. because I think this is something no. people listening might, you know, you're when you're describing someone and as a white person, you kind of feel like, should I say the black person? Like, what uh -huh, What do you uh -huh. prefer? You know what? But that's what you did is absolutely perfect. <laughs> what you just asked me, because you asked me, because you cared. Yeah. Uh, you cared what I wanted to be called. So um, I actually prefer to be called black. Okay. Um, but I know people, some people have an issue with that. Um, I don't consider myself really to be African-American, but I use it because that most people are more comfortable with that Okay. Uh, because I am not from Africa. <laughs> I was born in Brooklyn, New York, uh -huh. <laughs> but my son is African-American because my husband is from Africa. Okay. So, um, but you know, like, I think it's really important to ask people how they identify. Hey, do you want to be called black? Do you want to be called Caucasian, white, um, a person of color? What, what, what are you most comfortable with? Okay. And, you know, that little question, that interaction will change people's lives. Mm. I guarantee you. Mm, that's so good. Okay. Mm. We have to move on from diversity, but I'm glad I'm, I thank you for answering that. I, that all so day. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. That's so good. Mm. Um, and I'm, and I thank you for uh, making me feel so comfortable asking these hard questions. Oh, absolutely. Okay. So, um, I want to talk about your blog and mm -hmm. um, all the things around that. You've had so much going on in the past few years. And we talked about you being on the cover of Women's Running. And mm -hmm. um, you also had like an NBC special pick you up. Like, whoa. <laughs> um, but your blog is called, is it still called Fat Girl Running? It's still called Fat Girl Running. Okay. Tell me um, about that. Yeah. I started the blog. I actually opened up the blog. In 2009, um, after a friend of mine said, hey, you know, you're, you've been posting on Facebook so much about your fitness journey and this and that. Why don't you just start a blog? You're a writer anyway. So just do a blog. And I didn't even know what a blog was. <laughs> so she kind of walked me through the steps because she had her own blog. And, um, and so I opened up the blog in 2009. I didn't write anything in it until 2011. <laughs> and my... And, until I finally had something to say. And the very first post was, I finally have something to say. Mm. <laughs> and, um, and it was when I was training for my first marathon. And that was the Marine Corps Marathon in 2011. And um, I, I, I basically decided that I wanted to share my experiences in training for this long distance event um, with my friends and family. But also as, uh, you know, what it felt like to be a larger woman in this sport that was populated mostly by thinner people, or so I thought. And um, so that that was the genesis of that. And I just, you know, I wrote in it every couple of weeks, every couple of months, um, really only when I had stuff to say, or like when I had had an experience, or when I finished my first marathon, and what that was like, or when I met somebody on the trail who helped me get through 18 miles. Mm -hmm. And so I only wrote in it when I, I really wanted to express something. And I'm not one of those bloggers that blogs every week or, or even every month. I, I don't do that because um, I have a lot of stuff to do. 
<laughs> so, um, and I also write for Women's Running, you know, Women's Running Magazine. So, um, yeah, and I just, and that was, that was it. That's all I did. But I didn't realize that people outside of my family and friend circle would uh-huh. read it. Um, it was, it, it really was just intended for them. But, uh, but I guess people either found wisdom or, or just wanted to share, Hey, look, this is what my friend's doing. Why don't you read it? And I know you're um, training for a marathon. So, you know, listen, read what she went through. Maybe, maybe you're going through similar things. And, and that's how I grew. That's, I I don't have a huge subscriber ship. Is that a word? Yeah, I know. (laughs) But a lot of people like, but uh, in terms of my metrics, a lot of people read it. So um, so that's, it's pretty awesome. And then, you know, in 2015 is when Wall Street Journal came knocking. That's insane. <laughs> sort of out of the blue. That's so cool. <laughs> um, you know, and so, um, Rachel Bachman, who's at, uh, Wall Street Journal emailed me and, uh, said, Hey, I'd love to interview you about your blog. I'm working on this piece about, um, if, if working out is still beneficial, even if you don't lose weight. And I said, sure, sure. I have lots to say about that. <laughs> and so, and that was it. That was February of 2015. And then a couple of months later, after the article was published, I, I get an email from Runner's World. <laughs> so, <laughs> who, uh, and John Brandt was the, uh, the one who emailed me. And, and he, he said, uh, we'd like to do a feature on you. Are you amenable to that? Wait, what? <laughs> okay. <laughs> feature on me and in my head in my head I'm like do do they know that I'm fat and that I'm frequently last and uh yeah but that turned into uh if you count the pages like I'm on 12 of those pages in that magazine um and so and and that really started the ball rolling NBC came after that and then then it calmed down for a little bit but I, I I got some sponsorships out of that and um, ambassadorships and um, and then I got um, a literary agent who who called me and said, "Hey, uh, I lo- really like your blog. You're a good writer. You need to write a book." And so I said, "Okay." <laughs> okay, so that's how the book came about. Because you know, man, people work really hard to get an agent to pick up their book idea. You had an a. Uh, literary agent come to you I had two agents come to me that's incredible (laughs) and um but before then I had done a bunch of podcasts and stuff and um so I I guess my notoriety was growing a Mm -hmm. little bit and um and so I yeah I was contacted by um two literary literary agents um and uh the one I went with was uh actually Obama's first literary agent. Oh, really? <laughs> I didn't mean to name drop. I mean, but that's but, not a big deal um, or anything. <laughs> wow. And they've been they've been absolutely great. And um, so and we wonderful. all need to go pick up this book. Where can everybody find it? <laughs> so um, it is available on Amazon. Uh, and it's the Kindle version is currently a bestseller. That's amazing. Uh, <laughs> I cannot believe those versions came out of my mouth. Um, I saw you, I saw that posted somewhere. I, I read that. Yeah, for sure. That's I so thought, amazing. You know, I thought that was just going to last for a day because it was, because it was one of, um, one of the Kindle first choices, um, that you can still get for free, um, up until September 30th. And, uh, if you are an Amazon prime member, okay, but, I read that, um, but so does that literally mean, does it, do you have it until se- you have to read it by September 30th for yeah, it to be well, free? You, you can, uh, download it to your Kindle and it's yours for free for free. How until- did that deal get worked out? Um, well, my publisher happens to be owned by Amazon. OMG. <laughs> and somehow, I don't know what what machinations were going on in the background um, and how it happened that my book was picked for uh, Kindle First, but it was, and it has been incredible. Wow. Uh, and uh, of course, I want to make money on the book, but I think it's what's, what's incredible to me is that people are actually reading it. <laughs> Well, yeah, and I've learned a little bit about making money on books because you get your uh, whatever, what's it called, the money you get up front, but then it's like you have to sell like a crap load before you actually start making money, right? Yep, before you get any royalties because you have to earn your advance. Yeah, okay, exactly. uh, 
Mm-hmm. That's how it works out. You get your uh-huh. advance, but then you have to sell enough books to make that back. And then you start making royalties. That's how it yeah. is. Yeah. Okay. All right. That makes sense. <laughs> well, that's so cool. Um, so in your NBC special, you mm-hmm. talk about how you want to take the negative connotations away from the word fat. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm sure that there have been like people that criticize you for naming a blog that or whatever, but talk to me about the word fat and what that means and what you mean by taking away the negative connotation. Sure. Um, I think that, first of all, the word fat uh, is stigmatized and I think it will always be stigmatized um, just based on the way our society has has developed, um, it's particularly in the United States. Um, I think... Uh, because it's associated with so many negative things. It's associated with um, laziness, with um, not having intelligence, with um, just sort of sitting around and not having any ambitions in life. And and who knows why it's, why it's associated with that. I mean, there's there's definitely a history about it, and I won't go into all of that. But um, but it's you know if. I remember on a, another podcast that I did, you know, one of the one of the moderators said that you know if if fat people were if all fat people were lazy and <laughs> and slovenly and and not ambitious, America wouldn't be the like number one country in the world financially. Mm. Like mm. you know, so that's so that's not it. Like it's not true. But people still have this image of fat people being being th- those things. Um and and. While the fat people I know, <laughs> including myself, are not lazy. We work really hard. Um, I am not slovenly, although my house is a little bit of a mess right now. But anyway. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and so, like, the more that we can do to be out there and to show people that, that these are not the things that we are, um, we're far more, fat people are far more complex than what society makes us out to be. Um, and so that's that's kind of the the journey that I'm on and like, that's my personal campaign. Uh, because I, you know, when people look at me, I know what they're thinking if they don't know me already. Mm. <laughs> um, you know, like what's, especially when I'm out running, like what's she doing? Like, mm. uh, she's got a lot of weight to lose or, you know, or whatever it is. Um, but I want, I want people to know that that's, again, we, we are very, very all of us, all humans are very, very com- complex. And so um, to just like have this, this uh your initial impression uh be informed by stereotypes that is that's something that i that i fight against uh every day so um and you know i'm fat i know people have uh, an issue with the word fat but i'd rather be called fat than overweight or obese or morbidly obese or um i think i think it has less sting um i also think that you know to reclaim that word and to give it a different meaning, um, is a really, really important. So, um, you know, if you're fat, it means that you have fat on your body. (laughs) (laughs) Um, you might be larger than average or whatever it is, or if, you know, to use the medical term obese, whatever, but first of all, that's, has a horrible ring to it. Um, (laughs) it's very clinical and it's, you know, and then the people use it to, to stigmatize other people, um, I think more so than the word fat. So, um, so yeah, I'm, and I'm absolutely comfortable with it. I did get a lot of flack for naming my blog fat girl running and people still say, well, I see a fit girl running Mm. or I see, you know, but that's how I choose to identify myself. And that's how other people and that the various movements that have popped up the body positivity movement, there's a fat acceptance movement, there's a the health at every size movement and, and uh, among others. But, you know, it's it's up to me to define who I am, not you. So um, and so that's that's how I, you know, use the power that I have to say fat. So. Yeah. And I agree with you that when I hear the word obese, that, that to me sounds like I don't know. It, it sounds more negative. It sounds mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. oh, they're obese. Like, you know, they've given up or I don't know. It mm-hmm. sounds so bad. Now, let me ask you this, though, because you did. Um, um, I've heard you talk about you were driving in the car with your son and you had chest mm-hmm. pain. You ended up going mm-hmm. to the doctor. It ended up not being a cardiac event, but the doctor kind of told you, like, right. look, like, let's do something about this. Tell me about is that kind of when the shift really started when you started doing marathons and ultras? 
Yes. Um, you know, I was at a point in my life where I was not at my healthiest. And for a variety of reasons, I was not emotionally healthy. I was not spiritually healthy or physically healthy because I was not sleeping. <laughs> I was working all the time. I had a son who was sick all the time, um, which meant that he was home all the time and I had to miss a lot of work. Um, my husband had a crazy work schedule, as did I. Um, and so there were a lot of things that sort of converged on this one moment where I had this health scare. And, uh, and, I, and, and for me, I was at a weight that was not good for my body personally. Mm. Um, and, you know, I was the heaviest that I had been. Um, and that led to some other issues with inflammation, um, my blood pressure was regular. My blood sugar was regular, but it was like I had a lot of inflammation in, um, uh, in my, um, was it C-reactive protein, I guess is what it's called. But, um, and that's what uh, set, caused the cardiologist to say, listen, you, in order to do this, you have to change your lifestyle right now. Um, and that's what I did. And so, and he did ask me to lose weight. And I said, okay, well, because I knew personally that that's what I needed to do because I was, I had never been that heavy. Um, and, you know, I had some hip bursitis that, that was going on. I had some other things going on physically. And, um, but I had, I didn't realize it because I was so consumed with work and with keeping my child healthy <laughs> that I was not concerned really about my own body. Um, but that was, that was a wake up call and, and, you know, which I heeded. Um, and, uh, you know, I, 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 I kind of wish that I had had some time to reflect and to, to sort, of, sort of look at myself and what was going on with my own body. Um, but I did it and I'm glad I got that wake up call. So how many marathons have you run? I have finished nine marathons. Wow. What's your favorite one? My favorite marathon is, oh gosh, but there are two. I don't That's have a hard to... question. <laughs> um, I, I, my first marathon was Marine Corps Marathon and I loved it. And I, um, I've done it five times. Oh, wow. Because I love it so much. And, um, but you know, I really love the New York City Marathon, which I did for the first time last year. And it was my worst time <laughs> in, ter in terms of how long it took me. But because it was at home, because there were so many people there, because I got to see my family at different points in the marathon, uh, and just because of the spirit that was there, like, I, it's, it's a close, I, you know, I can't even say it's a close second. It's, <laughs> it's right up there with the Marine Corps, so New York City and Marine Corps. Tell me about um, when you're running these marathons, um, what is it like to be, I mean, back of the packer kind of thing? Like, I feel like I've heard a lot of people, I've interviewed some people on this podcast that, mm -hmm. um, actually one of the girls I recently interviewed and she was talking about how like one time she ran a half marathon and they closed the finish line up before she got to the finish line. And tell me about like the camaraderie and the people cheering on people that are running in the back of the pack. People are great. You know, um, because the people at the back of the pack, and this might this might be true also for the you know mid packers and the, the elites, but there's a sense of we are doing this because we want to, because it's a great thing to do, because we love it, mm. uh, and we don't care how slow we are. I mean, we do want to make the cutoff, mm -hmm. but <laughs> but we're out here just to be out here and and to be part of the scene, and we are because we're running the same mileage, maybe slower excuse me, than everybody else. But, um, but we're out here doing this, doing this, this incredible thing. Um, so there, there is a, there is a definitely a sense of camaraderie. Um, and you know, we're out here because we love it. And that's what I, that's what I love about running. I, people, most people I know anyway, do it because they love it. Uh, they might have different goals than I do. Like they, they might have weight loss goals or they might have a goal to, you know, to PR by a couple of minutes or whatever it is, but we're still out there doing the same thing. Um, and that's, and that's beautiful. Um, I wanted to ask you, and this is kind of jumping back to the whole fat talk. Mm -hmm. Um, I wanted to ask you, do you think, and tell me how you would explain this, there's a healthy way to be fat and live a healthy lifestyle. 
I absolutely believe that. Um, I think that depending on whatever, depending on your sort of personal health and your relationship with your doctor, and hopefully that's a healthy relationship. And I know that's not true for everybody. Um, I have had fantastic doctors, um, but I'm also very forward and forthcoming and <laughs> in terms of what I need. But um, I think like if you, for me, example, for example, um, I um, like when I, in the last couple of years, when I've gone and for my physical, everything has been normal. Mm. Except for last year when I was working on my book and my blood pressure was a little bit elevated. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> I can imagine a lot of anxiety. <laughs> uh, and then as soon as I turned the book, the manuscript in, everything went back to normal. Mm. So, um, you know, which, which is interesting because your body manifests itself, manifests different things in, in different ways. And for me, for that stress and anxiety, and I'd never had so much stress and anxiety before, um, you know, that it made my blood pressure rise. Just a little bit. It wasn't significant, but it was definitely different than it had been. Um, but I absolutely believe that you can strive for health, that you can be a healthy, fit person. Um, you know, and I'm not a doctor. I'm not a nutritionist. I'm not a dietitian. But um, you know, in my own personal experience, I've seen uh, people who are um, who are considered to be fat or obese or overweight. I've seen them do these incredible things and, and change their lives and, and be like at their healthiest physically or, or emotionally or mentally. Um, even, you know, even though to some people it might seem like they shouldn't be because they're big, uh, but they are, um, even though they are bigger than you think they should be. Mm-hmm. Um, the society thinks that they should be. So, um, so absolutely. Um, you know, and I know a lot of people are going to take issue with that and, and, and disagree, but, um, there are tons of people who are not fat, who, um, don't do anything, don't engage in any sort of physical, act- physical activity and who have like, um, awful blood work. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. um, you know, but yeah, I, I, I do think so. I mean, and then, and of course there are people who, you know, on um, who are so-called straight size and plus size or, or fat, um, that don't, that are not healthy. Um, and so, but they're not healthy because of whatever reason. And I'm not going to make any judgments. On that. Well, yeah. And isn't ge- genetics are so crazy because I mean, one of my best friends, she'll go like six months without working out at all, but she, and she's just real thin and that's just how she was born. Like that's mm-hmm. her genetics and she doesn't overeat, but she doesn't particularly watch what she eats. And that's mm-hmm. just how her body is, you know? Right, exactly. And if you look at my family, most people in my family are big. Um, and except for my son, my husband's, uh, thinner and taller. And, and so, and it looks like he doesn't come for me. <laughs> so tall and lanky yeah uh, <laughs> he, he's kind of an anomaly in our family oh, that's funny. <laughs> but you know again genetics plays a role my, my husband's tall and skinny and you know and so he obviously got that part from him <laughs> yeah okay well we are gonna do some wrap-up questions here okay um you have to go to book club tell me what book you guys are yeah. reading um, we, it's our first meeting of the year. It's a, my, uh, sort of ladies on campus or on campus ladies book club. And, uh, we have not decided okay. which books we're reading, but obviously I'm going to be bringing my book in. Sure. Hello. <laughs> um, and suggesting it as our October read, but, um, and now is it kids that go to the school or is it faculty? Oh, it's faculty. Okay. <laughs> There's lots and lots of wine. <laughs> okay, good. Those are the best kind of book clubs. Oh, yes. Um, um, it's a great time. Yeah. Yeah. We have an online book club Book club with this podcast, by the way. And right now we are reading Option B by Sheryl Sandberg. Have you read that? I have not. I read um, her first one. Oh, okay. I, I need to read that book, too. I haven't read, read it, it yet. It. Yes, um, yes. But the only downfall of this online podcast is, I mean, not podcast, book club mm-hmm. is uh, there's no wine. I guess we could do like a live a live stream yeah. and drink wine and do the live exactly. stream. Exactly. Do a little like Google Hangout thing. Uh-huh. Oh, that's a good idea. 
OMG, that's what I'm going to do. Okay. (laughs) That's such a good idea. Um, Okay. Well, you'll have to let me know what you guys pick and we will put the link to your book in the show notes for sure. Um, Okay. So what's one thing professionally or personally that you haven't done yet that you'd like to do? Oh, that's easy. I really, really, really want to go back to grad school and I want to do it full time. Um, (laughs) Uh, without having to work a full-time job. Mm. So we'll see. <laughs> and I want to, um, I started this great program um, at Drew University in New Jersey. Um, and it was a, it's called the Masters of Arts and Letters. And it goes directly into the doctorate of, Doctor of um, Arts and Letters. And it's a sort of liberal studies program. And if you look at me, look at anything in my life that, I, that's what I do. Like I do languages, I do music, I, I write, I, um, I do all these different things. And sort of this, this program was encompassed everything that I did. Um, but I was focused on writing and I'd like to, to finish it, uh, again, full time. I'd like somebody to pay for it. <laughs> when do you foresee that happening? Um, I, I'm hoping in the next three years, cause okay. I'd like to finish up the master's program and go directly into the doctoral program um, and uh, do as much nonfiction, creative writing that I can. Wow. That is incredible. Let's hope that happens. (laughs) (laughs) You are a person that likes to learn and likes school. Oh, I love school. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Okay. What's an accomplishment you're more, you're most proud of? You know, um, I would say this book. Oh, Um, sure. I never thought that I would actually number one get a book deal because um, I'd always been wanting to write some sort of memoir. Memoir, but um, I, I, the fact that I got a book deal and that I actually finished the book and I wrote way more than the minimum hmm. word count, um, and that it's actually selling. Um, that is really incredible and astonishing to me, and I'm really proud of that. That is incredible. And even though it made your blood pressure go up, you said you want to write another one. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, no, because I'm, I'm familiar with the process now, and I, I think that uh, – and I know that I can do it, so it'll still probably make my blood pressure rise a little bit. Yeah. But then, uh, you know, then it'll only be temporary. Well, and you – now you have, like, a, you know, connection with your agent, so mm-hmm. yes, you're good. Yes, and now she's already expecting me to – to uh, submit my proposal for the next thing. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Well, that's, that is a good problem to have. Yes, it is. I'm not complaining at all. <laughs> so if you had one message to send to the world, what would it be? Um, I would say, do you be authentic in everything that you do and in every aspect of your life. Uh, I, I think that's the only way to be. Mm, that's good. What are you loving right now? Oh, I'm loving everything about life, but particularly at Starbucks. Ooh, what do you love at Starbucks? Here, um, they have this latte called the Cascara Latte, and it's um, made with, uh, I guess, syrup made from coffee beans. Okay. Um, and it's not overly sweet. It's amazing, and I get it every time I'm at Starbucks. Okay, so. that's interesting to me because you know what I always do? I get like it because I'll get like an afternoon coffee. I'll get like a two pump mocha because I don't want a full on mocha because it's um, sweet. Yeah. Like I don't care about the calories so much. I just don't want it. It's too sweet. It tastes like hot chocolate. Mm -hmm. So this sounds like it might be a really good replacement for that because I'm always like two pump mocha is maybe there's something else I could order. Does do you think this sounds like? Uh, Yes. Cascara latte. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm going to try next time. (laughs) What is the best, most recent book you've read? Oh, that's easy. I just finished um, this thriller called, that I'm also going to bring to book club tonight, um, called The River at Night Okay, by Erica Ferenc, or Ferenc. And it is a book that is based in Maine that is um, sort of a female version of Deliverance. Okay. Um, and it is, I don't normally read thrillers and I, uh, yeah, but this one, this one, talk about my blood pressure rising. I I couldn't read it at night. Is it scary? (laughs) It's, it's not scary, but there's a lot of suspense and there's a lot of, well, yeah, I guess it is scary. Okay. I I definitely couldn't read it at night then. Yeah. And, and it is, it was, it's, it's well-written and it's, um, 
You know, it didn't seem like it didn't seem overly formulaic as a, a lot of thrillers go. And um, yeah, it was just it was exciting. And it actually made me want to go explore the, <laughs> the woods in Maine a little bit more, even though it was highly disturbing. Not alone. <laughs> <laughs> you bring somebody with you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Okay. What do you have a non a favorite or one of your na- favorite nonprofits to support? Um, I, you know, actually there are two, um, okay. I know like people have their issues with Red Cross, but Red Cross was really good to my family when they had a fire in their house, um, in terms of like supplying clothing and putting them up in shelters and stuff. Um, they were really, really excellent and really, um, just timely and wonderful. Um, and you know, and they are serving people, um, that have been affected by the hurricanes. Um, and then my other favorite charity is Habitat for Humanity. Um, I have had the opportunity to work several times on houses in Baltimore, Maryland, and in um, in New Orleans in a night ward, uh, after, especially after Katrina. And uh, everything that they do is is just so uplifting and amazing. So if people want to really, really contribute to something that changes people's lives, it's, it's Habitat for Humanity. That's so good to hear. And I love that you have like a personal story with Red Cross because mm-hmm. I hear what you're saying with, with the negative comments on Red Cross and right. I haven't had any personal experiences with them. So it's good to hear that coming from someone who actually has. Yeah. <laughs> um, do you have any favorite people to follow on social media? Yes. Um, Roz the Diva. Okay. Uh, she's a pole dancer. Okay. <laughs> um, but, but like body positive pole dancer. Okay. Um, awesome. Jessamine Stanley, of course, who is the fabulous yogi that everyone loves. Um, this is my, uh, my good friend. Um, her Instagram handle is I am Sean. I am Shantae okay. and she's uh, Latoya Sh- uh, Shantae Snell and she is also a body positive fitness person. She does marathons, ultra marathons. Um, she did, she lifts weights. She, she does everything. And she also, she's also a blogger and a chef. So um, I like to hang out with people that are, um, that are multifaceted and that do lots of different things. And so, yeah, I would say those are my three favorites. Okay. Oh, that's so fun. I love discovering new people and I have not heard of any of those people. Yeah. Good. So look them up and you will not be disappointed at all. Okay. They will be in the show notes as well. Well, I know you have to get to book club. I loved our conversation and there were so many other directions we could have gone with it, but we can't talk for three hours. So (laughs) next time. time. Yes. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us and just, just for doing what you're doing. I, I know that you're helping so many people out there that are honestly people that are looking at your blog thinking, where do I start and what do I need to do? And I just, you're an inspiration to so many people. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me on your show. All right. Have fun at book club. I will. Thanks. See ya. Bye. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning in today. Thank you, Myrna, for coming on the show. You guys can follow me on Instagram, lindsayhine626. You can find me on Twitter, at lindsayhine. And you can find me on Facebook. I'll have another podcast with Lindsay Hine. We are wrapping up our book for the month of September, which is Option B by Cheryl Sandberg. And we will have an October book as well. So find our Facebook group. All right, everybody, enjoy the rest of your weekend. Enjoy your Friday. And as always, I'll see you next Friday.